0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the book Hidden Valley Road recounts the heartbreak, mystery, and inspiration of the Galvin family. Six of the 12 children were diagnosed with schizophrenia.
1: Interestingly, the six different cases of mental illness in this family, they're all called schizophrenia, but the symptoms are all slightly different. And that really helps, I think, readers understand that schizophrenia is sort of a catch-all term. It's a syndrome with tons of different symptoms and that different people present in different ways.
0: And later, are we turning a corner when it comes to diagnosing and treating mental illness?
2: None of these treatments, not one treatment used today for psychiatric illness, and this includes talk, not one of these treatments, all of which are effective to some degree, not one of them was based on a fundamental understanding of the causes or mechanisms of mental illness.
0: Schizophrenia and what the human genome tells us about mental illness, ahead on Life Examined. For hundreds of years, doctors and scientists have grappled with understanding schizophrenia. It's a mysterious mental illness characterized by delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, and disorganized speech. Until the middle of the 20th century, treatment for severe cases would land someone in a mental institution and on heavy medication. Even more brutal were things like organ removal, lobotomies, and castration. Understanding what caused the condition remained rudimentary, and there was a period when therapists blamed parents, and especially mothers, for contributing to the condition. The Galvin family of Colorado was one such family. Mimi, Dawn, and their 12 children were, on the surface, a post-war American dream. But their lives turned into a nightmare, as over the years, 6 out of their 10 boys developed schizophrenia. In his book called Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, award-winning author Robert Kolker traces the lives of the Galvin family, how they coped with devastating loss and suffering, searched for answers and treatments, and how eventually their journey as a family helped transform the science and research into this disease. Well, Robert Kolker, welcome to Life Examined. Thank
1: you. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Can you paint a picture of the Galvin family for us, as we would have met them in the 1960s, which is when a lot of this happened? Who were they? Uh, Bring us into their lives a little bit.
1: Well, the mother of the family, Mimi Galvin, always said, even after the bad stuff happened, that they were a model family. Mm -hmm. And they they really were in those early years. They um, lived in Colorado Springs in the 1950s and 60s and had 12 children. Dad was an instructor at the Air Force Academy and also trained the cadets in falconry, and he flew Mm. falcons at the football games. The family has a place in history because the parents in the family, Don and Mimi, were the first people to suggest to the Air Force that they make the Falcon the Air Force's mascot. So Mm. that's their little slice of claim to fame. But then they became equally famous for having 12 children. And the 12 good-looking, talented, athletic, really... um, famous for their small community children, mm. and, uh, and 10 boys, really, until there were suddenly, you know, things changed and there were two girls at the end. Yeah. So the oldest were football stars, wrestling stars, musicians, their mother, you know, trained them to identify operas and exotic mushrooms out in the wild. Of course, they participated in falconry. They were assistants to their father and helped out the cadets and then flew birds on their own. They really were kind of extraordinary at a time of intense uh, American optimism. They kind of, you know, it's not a stretch to say that they embodied a certain, you know, American confidence and triumphalism af- in the years after World War II.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing description of them. And when do we see then the, the first brother um, begin to show symptoms of schizophrenia?
1: There's instability in the house as early as the late 50s, but it's all behind closed doors. Mm. It it takes the form of of a lot of rowdiness, and then something worse than rowdiness—a lot of violence, a lot of you know kids beating each other up, and the parents sort of turning a blind eye to it because they think boys will be boys, and not you know having the imagination to to think that this could be a sign of intense or severe mental illness. But the real psychotic break among the the first couple of sons to become mentally ill happens in the mid to late 60s and it happens right on time the way the clinicians say it happens which is in you know in your early 20s donald galvin the oldest of the 12 children the football star um he goes off to college and he has a psychotic break he's you know living in a in a root cellar with no heat and he's you know his only roommates are cats and and he is really in a crisis. But the family doesn't have many options. There are medical options that would warehouse him and destroy his life. And then there are therapists who would blame the parents for causing the mental illness. There There isn't a lot in the 60s to recommend um, in the way of really good mental health treatment. And so they kind of hope for the best and hope to find a doctor who can help him get enough back on his feet so that he can go back to college. And at the same time, Jim, the second born son, is having his own mental health problems. He's married and has a child, but he is drinking and then also becoming delusional and paranoid. Interestingly, the six different cases of mental illness in this family, they're all called schizophrenia, but the symptoms are all slightly different. And that really helps, I think, readers understand that schizophrenia is sort of a catch-all term and that they're... It's a syndrome with tons of different symptoms and that different people present in different ways.
0: Yeah. So if we take Donald, for example, um, he, he's in his early 20s and, and you've described that this is oftentimes when clinicians see um, see this manifest in different individuals. What would um, a psychotic break for someone like Donald's be like?
1: It starts with small things like being kind of a stranger to your own emotions Mm -hmm. or your own motivations, doing things and not really realizing why you do them and being frustrated that you can't connect with others. But then the first intense psychotic break he experienced probably was was when he ran into a bonfire during a pep rally. Um, He was only he only had minor injuries. But when he went to the health center, he had no way of explaining why he bothered doing it. It wasn't necessarily to get attention. And and he really had no good explanation. Mm -hmm. That Think would qualify probably as a psychotic break. And then to eliminate all doubt, there were others down the line where he tortured an animal, you know, a stray cat, and then killed another cat, things like that, things that are, are just extreme and strange and, and things he had no explanation for.
0: Mm, amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, that, that We begin to see this in Donald first, but then another brother begins to show symptoms. Who was that, and, and how did it start to present itself?
1: Jim was the second son, and a lot of the parents' hopes and dreams and ambitions really passed right by him and went to Donald, the older son. And he was always resentful of that, always a rival to Donald. The two of them fought and wrestled throughout their teenage years. And then once he was out of the house, he was determined to be on his own and prove that he was, you know, better at life really than Donald was. So while Donald was cratering in college and really having difficulties, he was married and working, you know, at a bar and having a child and and really projecting all this success. But behind closed doors, he was having probably more difficulties than Donald was. Mm. He was, you know, paranoid. He was delusional. At one point, he hit his head against a wall. At another point. He you know, jumped in a lake and didn't know why. And uh, the worst thing about this is that his wife tried to tell uh, the Galvin parents about it, but the Galvin parents were so worried about Donald that they didn't want to engage with the idea that more than one of their children might be having mental illness. Yeah. And so they couldn't really deal with both at the same time.
0: And this makes me wonder, if you're a family of the 1960s, if you're the all-American family of the 1960s, how do you begin to make sense of now two sons? And we know there are more coming in this story. How do you begin to make sense of, of this erratic behavior that, that, uh, that's very difficult to understand?
1: What we don't know about severe mental illness now you know, could fill a million books, and it was mm-hmm. even worse back then. Um, and really, it was about not only not knowing what mental illness was, but also seeing conflicting opinions everywhere you turned. Hmm. If they had taken Donald or Jim to a place in Denver, to the University of Colorado Hospital, they would have been met with psychotherapists who would have started criticizing their parenting and telling them that their parenting caused mental illness, which was a prevailing opinion of the time. Wow. If they had gone to the state hospital in Pueblo, they would have said, oh, what these boys need is Thorazine. We're going to give you a lot of Thorazine, and that's a miracle drug, and it's going to make them a lot more manageable. But of course, we know that Thorazine isn't really a cure. It's just something that manages the symptoms of of mental illness. And uh, they could have gone to a place that was very expensive, like the Menninger Clinic, but those end up being just sort of uh, panaceas that are 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 cushy environments, but again, they don't do anything to solve the issue. Um, nobody had a solution, and everybody had a different strategy and Then when you pick one, you are saying no to the others, and so the parents really knew that the that any choice would lead to a greater stigma and I think that was the bottom line for them. They had eleven or the other children, and then when Jim got sick, they had ten other children. they had a you know Donald the father had a career where he was advising governors and lobbying Washington, D.C., if it came out that there was a this sort of problem in his family, the career would be over, the, the, all their lives would be over, all the children wouldn't have a chance at a normal life. Mm-hmm. And so they decided that the best strategy was to try to paper over it and and hope for the best and hope things would get better to let the kids come home and stay there behind closed doors, as long as they could possibly do that. And to shop for doctor opinions that might be able to get Donald back into college one day, or might be able to get Jim back on the job one day to try to mainstream them.
0: Mm. So the amazing part about this story is that we've only talked about two of the sons, four more of them. This isn't a family of 12 would end up Displaying some level of schizophrenia, do they follow a similar timeline? Is it in the twenties that the next four sons begin to show symptoms?
1: Um, there are two who do it in their teens. Peter's fourteen, and I think Matt's around seventeen. But then Joe is is later, and um, and then and also poor Brian is later. Brian is a murder suicide, wow. and this is usually the point in the interviews where I kind of call a timeout and I say, "Yes, there's a." Absolutely everything bad that could possibly happen to this family happens. And it's it's terrifying at first, but what, what really I found inspiring in talking with the family was how they moved through these traumas and found a way to remain a family.
0: And if you could tell us a little bit about, um, at the worst what it was like to be in that household, because there were things that were happening that perhaps we didn't learn about until much later. I mean, molestation, um, a tremendous amount of trauma. Can you tell us just a little bit about, about some of that stuff?
1: Well, Jim Galvin, the second son, the one who was married and had a child of his own and living apart from the family, he kind of offered his home as a refuge for some of the smaller kids when the house was so chaotic, when Donald was back home from the mental hospital. And that meant that he would play host to the two little girls in the family, the two mm-hmm. sisters, Margaret and Mary. And um, what the family learned years later was that the sisters were being molested by him one after the other on a pretty regular basis. And that alone is horrifying. But um, to you know interview the sisters now and hear about how they had to sort of tell the truth about their brother and how they sometimes got, you know a cool reception to when they told the truth that that is difficult too mm. there's also um most likely there was clergy abuse one of the sons said that he was molested by a priest um and uh, then there was a murder suicide when things were at their worst it was probably 1973 and 1974 and that's when brian off in sacramento killed his girlfriend and then himself Jeez. and the parents had to sort of lie to the younger children and and not say exactly how brian had died Mm -hmm. and then um of course um you know jim and donald were now undeniably mentally ill and they couldn't really keep the secret from anyone any longer and then the father of the family don galvin had a stroke right in front of his son peter who was just 14. peter had a psychotic break about three or four weeks later everything was really falling apart and at some point mimi the mother was on the phone with a friend of hers and just completely unburdened herself and started collapsing and, and admitting weakness in a way that she almost never did and that friend decided to take in one of the girls and bring bring her out of that environment and raise her for a few years and host her at, at her home and that you know that was good news in a sense but also it it divided the family further and the remaining sister felt abandoned and the sister who was pulled out of the family felt penalized because you know why are you keeping the mentally ill boys at home? But mm. I have to leave, and and so all of the emotions of that moment are just. Um, that's really the nadir for the family, I think, in the, um, in seventy three, seventy four, seventy five.
0: Yeah. How how do the parents cope during this period? And and my goodness, like how 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 were they making sense of all of this? Um, what did you What did you find out? I
1: think that they were of two minds about it, that Don, the father, believed that uh, the boys needed to learn to stand on their own two feet, that, that he, he embraced more of a tough love approach, saying, well, if we coddle them, then they won't ever grow up, mm-hmm. and that this was about maturing, and that they weren't mature. Um, and then Mimi disagreed. She, she wasn't going to let them go. She wasn't going to let them go to the state hospital or let them go anywhere else for too long um unless she absolutely had to and she also the two of them i think were were co-conspirators in a way because they neither of them really wanted the world to really know much, too much about what was going on for in those early years before it became undeniable so they helped uh, they enabled one another's you know capacity to sort of uh mask what was happening mm-hmm. you know donald comes back to live with them after being at the state mental hospital. And the explanation is that he's sad because his wife left him and that, that uh, he's heartbroken and that he's trying to get back on his feet and they're going to get him a job and mm. things will be better soon, but there's no discussion of mental illness. There's no discussion of the state hospital or of the many prescriptions he's on of the danger that he put his wife in before he was hospitalized. All of that is kept secret. Yeah decades, actually, from some people, who, some neighbors who never really knew.
0: So did, did the parents at any point accept that this was a mental illness, this was schizophrenia, or was it always trying to kind of say, well, it, it might be the result of this or something might be off here? I mean, what what level of honesty was taking place in the household, do you think?
1: I'm not so sure they they were happy about the schizophrenia diagnosis at first, but mm. once both Jim and Donald were diagnosed, they suddenly were on high alert for others. And in yeah. fact, they threw one of their sons in the hospital, um, in the psych unit, because they thought that perhaps he had a problem and it turns out he didn't. He was just, you know, a, a, a druggie, he was on drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, he was a hippie and a teenager and partying too much. But the, you know, so so at some point they, a switch flipped and they said, something is happening in our family and that thing has a name and the name is schizophrenia. Yeah. That didn't settle the question of where it came from or why it was happening. So they had their water tested and Mimi embraced a regimen of megavitamins for the rest of the children to take. And you know, they were trying to look for any sort of environmental or genetics explanation for this that would, um, that would absolve them first and foremost because so much of the psychotherapeutic establishment was really blaming parents particularly mothers for severe mental illness there was a concept called the schizophrenogenic mother which is like a little like a first cousin to the refrigerator mother for autism it was it, it was they were blaming mothers for everything back then and schizophrenia wasn't an exception
0: and this to me is particularly heartbreaking that there were probably decades i mean no even centuries of of families that may have blamed themselves for mental illness in the family when really they had nothing to do with it is would you agree with that
1: i would and it's really a it's an interesting mystery and it was a an interesting thing to track in hidden valley road in the portions of the book where i get into how the science and our understanding of it evolved because all you had to do is look at royal families over the years to know that madness ran in the family but it was never a straight line it almost never was from parent to child so that meant that early genetics wasn't able to really explain away mental illness as a genetic disorder. And that meant that others could come in and say, well, it was something else. It was bad parenting or it was trauma or it was neurosis gone unchecked or, or whatever other explanation they would come up with. And this argument between the geneticists and the therapists continued from generation to generation. It, it, it morphed and modulated all the way from the turn of the 20th century up until the 1980s or 90s, when finally mother blaming kind of faded away. Hmm.
0: Was there any history of, of schizophrenia in the parents' families? Did, could they trace any of this back?
1: That was the other huge mystery. They couldn't really find anything. Hmm. There was later on, it seemed, on Don, Don's side of the family, he had a brother who had some mental health issues, and that brother had a kid with mental health issues. But, um, they didn't know any of that back then, but there was no real easy way of saying, oh, well, they're, they're all just like grandpa. You know, there, there was never that explanation to help them out.
0: Mm. Which complicates this, doesn't it, right? So if you can't see, and you mentioned this in royal families, it's funny that this kind of came up recently in The Crown, if anybody's watched this on Netflix, that there is this, there is this history, this genealogy of mental illness that would run through some of these royal families, and it was always very tucked away, it was very hushed, and when you when you think about these brothers who who ultimately developed some some levels or forms of schizophrenia i mean do you feel that the environment might have played a role in them in them expressing the mental illness
1: i think it's certainly true that early intervention could have helped them all hmm. so let's say donald for instance he wasn't hospitalized until his mid 20s when he finally like was violent with his wife and had to go, you know, was arrested and that sent him to the hospital. So he's 25, but you could argue that his first psychotic break was when he was 15 and he like smashed all the dishes when he was washing the dishes. Um, you know, back then they would be able to say, Oh, he's a teenager. It's the sixties. Other kids are doing worse. So he smashed the dishes. So what, but today there's a little more, um, people a little more in tune with mental health issues with teenagers then perhaps it would have been flagged and he would have gotten an earlier intervention perhaps a mix of medication and CBT cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy that could help him manage what was happening while his brain was still developing so that he wouldn't have as many psychotic breaks going forward so that the quality of his life would be quite improved from then on yeah so we're not talking about a cure for schizophrenia but we're talking about Ways to intercept it while your brain's still developing, so that your brain is more resilient
0: one thing that that comes up in some of the, the the symptoms of of schizophrenia is a certain religiosity that I think is kind of fascinating in this conversation and And if I have this right, I mean this is something we've seen throughout history as well. I, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Well, one of the varieties of schizophrenia involves hearing voices, another involves delusions, you know thinking something is true when it isn't. And then a third one would be hallucinations, seeing mm. things that aren't really there. And so when those start to happen, I think that that religion winds up being a very easy explanation, particularly if it's in your life already. And so it, it's not really a surprise to me that religiosity kind of takes over in in those situations quite often. I know that Peter Galvin and Donald Galvin both had that issue where they would um they, they would be very, very religious during their most intense moments of either hallucination or delusion, and, um, and certainly many other people as well.
0: It's interesting that, this, um, that, that schizophrenia presented itself in the males, but, but not in the sisters. Is there, any, is there anything you learned about why that could be?
1: It's unclear. There, there's some genetic news about the Galvins at the end of Hidden Valley Road, which was exciting and also very inspiring to see that the researchers who have studied them for so long actually have some news about them. Uh, that could be helpful to others with schizophrenia, and but part of that genetic news is not does not have anything to do with explaining why only boys and not the two girls um, seem to have the illness it 's not like there was a sex dependent mm. genetic variant that that uh, affected them. so the mystery continues. I do know that you know that um, population wide Males have a slight edge on females when it comes to schizophrenia, but it's not like with other disorders. I think with autism, it's like far and wide with far more boys than girls get diagnosed. But mm. with schizophrenia, it's a little more even. So it's tricky. So it's not clear why, why the, you know, why Mary and Margaret didn't have schizophrenia, but the, but six of the 10 boys did.
0: Hmm. What, what was the kind of um, medical breakthrough that, that came about towards the end of the book?
1: It's very exciting to me because it kind of drives home the idea that not everything is a, a straight line when it comes to science, that, that you study one thing and it leads you in another direction and then you hit a dead end and then you have to backtrack and come up with a different thing. And so one of the luxuries of a longer book like Hidden Valley Road is I'm I'm able to talk about two different research teams that met the family in the 80s. And then it took until 2015 and 2016 for these teams to come through with Really interesting information that could really be helpful to people like the Galvins, and you see the long and winding roads that they each took to get there. It's pretty pretty great. Robert Friedman in in, uh, in Denver has come up with an FDA-approved you know supplement for um, expectant mothers to take that could be good for brain resilience and perhaps help uh, people who have a genetic predisposition to severe mental illness make their brains more resilient before they're even born. Um, that's something that is being Mm -hmm. tested longitudinally and we may not know for 20 years, whether it really is the case, but so far so good with the kids who have taken it. And then, um, Linda Lisi, who was with the national Institute of mental health when she met the Galvin's she finally was able to sequence their genomes and get them some news about their particular genetic variant and why, uh, Behave the way it did and the big surprise there is that even though the father of the family seems to have a little mental illness in his family the genetic variant is coming from the mother's side of the family
0: well it, as you think about the, this story at large the impacts on this family and and how in some ways though their story may be extreme there are relatable aspects of this family and many others and many other families and and thinking about how mental illness has been something that has been um, tucked in the corner, uh, kept quiet, as something that families have been embarrassed by. Do do you hope that part of this story opens this conversation up in a new way, destigmatizes some of it? Because that's certainly been the case um, for for decades in America.
1: That's really the great hope here. The Galvins went through their huge crisis at a time where the solution was to break families apart put them in institutions, the sick ones, and try and pretend it never happened. And um, the opposite is true now. Now, if there's a family that has the luxury of good health care, there's family support and there is destigmatization, but there, it's too little. There isn't enough destigmatization now. And I'm hoping Hidden Valley Road can be a part of the campaign to reduce the stigma. And I do have optimism. I mean, in our lifetime, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, even autism, you know, all are things that we talk about now that we just didn't talk about way back when. And um, I think that schizophrenia is next. And I want to be a part of that effort.
0: Robert Kolker is the author of Hidden Valley Road. It's been a pleasure to to have you on Life Examined uh, this morning. Thanks for the time.
1: Thank you. Great talking with you.
0: Still to come, the stigma of mental illness. And can schizophrenia ever be, quote, cured? Our next guest says there's been a huge paradigm shift in the thinking about psychiatric disorders thanks to mapping the human genome. Join us on Life Examined after this short break.
2: Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at KCRW.com cars.
0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Robert Kolker, author of Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, recount the moving story of the Galvin family, where 6 out of their 12 children were diagnosed with varying degrees of schizophrenia. So how are we to make sense of the root causes of the disease? Why does it run in some families, but not others? And how can our environment trigger these illnesses? Daniel Weinberger is the director and CEO of the Lieber Institute for Brain Development and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University. He's spent the last 40 years studying schizophrenia, which he says is more like a group of conditions rather than one. We'll hear about the significance of genetic research and why he's hopeful for future cures. Well, Dr. Daniel Weinberger, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: I was wondering if you could give us some insight into what it might be like to be schizophrenic. What's happening in the mind? So from your research, how, how could you kind of uh, bring us into somebody that might be dealing with this disorder?
2: So uh, it's a very important question. I mean, I've spent literally 40 years of my life trying to understand this condition. Yeah. And what it's like for people who suffer from what we call schizophrenia, which is, I think, as many people know now, it's not really one particular illness. Mm. It's a group of disorders that come under this this name, schizophrenia. It's probably not one condition. But mm. what people share that get this diagnosis is a great deal of disordered thinking, the capacity to process what's happening in environment in a coherent, logical purposeful, organized way is affected. People misunderstand often very familiar environmental circumstances, that before they were ill in this way, they may have had no difficulty understanding and negotiating. But once this illness is in full bloom, people misread the intentions of others. They are concerned that many circumstances in their world are at their risk or are out to harm them. We call this paranoia, where people are convinced that there is ill will in the minds of others and that events in the environment are conspiring to hurt them. Mm -hmm. There are often perceptual distortions and perceptual um, uh, uh, profound abnormalities. Sometimes people will hear voices talking to them that are not really there. They're in their head, although they're often heard as if they're outside of their head. Mm. The typical voices that people experience who have schizophrenia are not friendly. Right. They're generally very unfriendly. They're very generally very uh, disruptive and painful. They often tell people very negative things about themselves. Uh, there's also very, people engage in very strange behaviors as a result of the misunderstanding of the environment mm. and the misappropriation uh, ap- of importance to events around them, as well as hearing voices, yeah. um, there are many abnormal concepts people have about the world. Uh, individuals be convinced, for example, that there is a plot uh, by the, in the neighborhood to undermine their well-being. People we refer to this as delusional ideas. Mm. Um, and the other thing that's very typical of people who experience schizophrenia is there's a great deal of ha- of pain. This is not a pleasant experience. Uh, it is not like a psychedelic experience which some people may have experienced with psychedelic drugs. There's no aha or how cool right. uh, part of this. This is a very painful state of mind wow.
0: So this is something that physicians have been trying to make sense of for hundreds of years. Have you gone back and just looked at how the medical community has tried to work with individuals with this kind of a diagnosis? I mean, what was the
2: plan? As you know, I mean, mental illness, particularly what used to be called madness, has been a subject of literature, religion, philosophy, and science. Four centuries. You know, in my early career, when I was at the National Institutes of Health, I spent time at a public psychiatric hospital called St. Elizabeth's Hospital. It was actually, at the time, the first and public U.S. government neuropsychiatric hospital. And I used to like going to the library and looking at some of the old volumes of how people conceptualize mental illness, particularly schizophrenia. And, you know, there have been almost countless theories countless explanations claims to understand it which go back from you know the the era of you know of of the notion that there were visitations oh. to people being possessed to fundamental psychological concepts at the end of the day 100 years plus of clinicians scientists doctors psychologists, sociologists trying to understand schizophrenia. Most of this understanding was based at trying to explain how people looked, how they behaved, and how they self-said they felt. This was based on what we call phenomenology. That is the observed or experienced phenomena of the state that we call schizophrenia. And at the end of the day, While these observations were useful in giving us constructs to think about what the problem was, to think maybe to develop scientific hypotheses, to maybe think about ways that we could organize ourselves as scientists or as clinicians, as doctors, to understand what somebody was going through, it wasn't based on science. Mm. It was not based on objective science. It was based on primarily subjective ideas that people could argue to convince others made the most sense. And that's pretty much where the field was for centuries, until primarily the last 20 or 30 years, where the whole science of how we think about mental illness has taken a profound turn in a very different direction.
0: Yeah, C- can you say more about that? Because I know that, I mean, th- there were some crazy treatments, uh, well, lobotomies or, or different medications that could have really, really detrimental side effects. Um, but but now I think we're going into something which is much deeper, which is the human genome. Um, yes, wh- yes. What is happening right now with research? So
2: you, you mentioned lobotomies, I mean, you're right. I mean, the history of treatments is really it's extraordinary there were there were you know castration for wow. example was a very common treatment there were organs removed uh there were you know people were treated with very high fevers um, at one point insulin coma was a popular treatment where you gave people insulin to lower their blood blood sugar to such a level that they had a seizure and went into a coma Jeez. and of course electroconvulsive treatments which are still used to some degree today because they are effective Mm. in many individuals. Obviously, they're not ideal. The irony of all treatments for schizophrenia, and this is basically true for all treatments of psychiatric disorders, whether the treatment is talk, medicine, electricity, there is increased interest today in using magnetic treatments uh, applied to the head as a way of inducing some of what electricity treatments did without the convulsion. Mm-hmm. None of these treatments, not one treatment used today for psychiatric illness, and this includes talk, not one of these treatments, all of which are effective to some degree, not one of them was based on a fundamental understanding of the causes or mechanisms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. This is unique, probably, among the fields of medicine, where therapies tend to be based on some degree of understanding how the illness gets going. Yeah. In psychiatry, none of the treatments are based on that. So the big change now is we've known for a century that psychiatric illnesses, schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, autism, they all run in families. So we knew this for decades based on studies of twins who were raised separately, having different environments, based on individuals who were adopted away from their biological parents, where their genes were defined by the biological parents, but their environments were defined by their adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. And all of these studies showed that it was the biology and not the environment that that was the principal cause of who manifest this schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, etc., in their lifetime. This was known for 40-50 years. We didn't know what the genes were. And the reason it became critical to know what the genes were is genes are not just words. They are biological defined entities with a beginning and an end, and they can be studied as discrete biological concepts and entities. So with the advent, with the sequencing of the human genome, which was the rough draft being completed in 2001, and that draft has been increasingly refined so that today about 99.9% of the human genome, at least as represented by one sort of like every man's genome, even though it's not really every man's genome, because we all have very different ancestries that have put slight variations in everybody's genome. If we all had the same genome, we'd all be identical twins. So we obviously don't all have the same genome. But we at least have a reference that we can use to orient us to try to understand where any individual's genome fits in this reference of what the three billion letters in the DNA alphabet of an individual look like. Once we had this, and there's been a revolution in the science of molecular genetics, that is the genetics of DNA, we've been able to look within individuals at exactly what the makeup of their genes are. This has changed the paradigm profoundly. We no longer talk about these illnesses being hereditary. We no longer talk about them running in families. We now talk about specific genes. Mm. Genes are, by definition, mechanisms of illness. Genes are the egg. They can't be the chicken. We're always worried. What's the chicken? What's the egg? What comes first? Genes always come first. They are the toolbox. They are the biological toolbox that human beings do life with. As I always say, if, if life is a monopoly game, genes don't determine how many railroads you own, whether you have a monopoly on boardwalk and park place. But genes are the go square in the game. They are the toolbox that you use to play the game with. Obviously, the environment is the roll of the dice, and the environment throws a lot of pebbles in your path. And it also throws a lot of opportunities in your path. The genes that you inherit, that you start life with, are the tools that you take advantage of opportunities, that you experience disappointment, that you pick yourself up, from your bootstraps and keep going. This is what genes are. Mm. And we've come to understand that the genes for psychiatric, for mental illnesses, we call psychiatric illnesses, are the genes that represent the biases towards developmental trajectories that will lead towards the expression of these conditions. So this is a huge, huge paradigm shift in our thinking about psychiatric disorders. It also puts them in the mainstream of biomedical research, and it's attracting a new generation of scientists, young scientists, who no longer see trying to understand the biology of schizophrenia or other mental disorders as some backwater of scientific investigation. It isn't.
0: Right, right. So how how confident are we that we have have discovered, you've said in the ballpark of a hundred or hundreds of genes that might predispose someone towards displaying schizophrenic symptoms? Are, Are we pretty
2: close to narrowing those down? Every one of us have some risk genes for schizophrenia. Every one of us have some risk genes for depression and bipolar disorder. The difference between those of us that have the illness and those of us that don't is that the people with the illness probably have inherited a few more of those risk genes. And they also have probably experienced some environmental events that have tipped them over the edge. We don't think the genes by themselves are enough to tip you over the edge. They bring you close to the precipice, but there have to also be environmental factors Mm -hmm. that finally make the difference between whether you're at what we might think of as high risk, meaning you've inherited a lot of these risk factors, but you still don't manifest the condition. The genes are not, they are necessary, but they're not sufficient in probably almost every case right. there needs to be. Every one of these genes that have been found by themselves contributes very little risk. It's only when they converge together in individuals who are at maximum risk. That their effects seem to be the difference between all of us who go through life with the ups and downs of the average existence of a human being, and those of us who are who are stricken by one of these illnesses.
0: Right. So it's interesting if if you look at something like schizophrenia or or bipolar disorder. Um, Generally speaking, you are not just born into the world with this condition. It's it's some relationship with the environment that, that yes. brings it on. Wh- what do you find is the most common thing in the environment that prompts the expression of these disorders?
2: So the environment's very important. The problem with studying the environment is much more difficult to get your hands around it than genes. Genes are, as I've said, they're biological entities. They're definable. They're bounded. It's very easy, relatively speaking, to study them. Problem with the environment, I always cite Paul Simon's lyrics when he said, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. Mm -hmm. And you know, the the environment is critically dependent on who you are. So, you know, at the in the last five seconds of an NBA game, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, people like that always wanted that ball. Other people never wanted that ball in the last five seconds. It was much too of an expect too much of an expectation. People have tremendously diverse experiences of the same environment. And that's presumably because our genomes have something to do with how the environment feels to us. Mm -hmm. So it's much harder to study the environment. One of the things we know now about almost all mental illnesses is that there are components of these illnesses that start very early in life, maybe even before postnatal life. Hmm certainly for schizophrenia, for autism, for ADHD. As we've been studying these genes, we've discovered that many of these genes seem to be turned on during prenatal life, meaning they have something to do with the original wiring of the brain. And they presumably set up a developmental trajectory that deviates towards the expression of these disorders and i there's an analogy i like to use to make give this some visual sense which is if you think about when you try to go when you go bowling and you try to bowl a strike the idea is to get the ball to cross over the second arrow in from the right about 10 feet up from the fall line in the alley and if it crosses that arrow at the right angle with the right speed, by the time it gets to the pins all the way down the alley, it's no longer where it started at that arrow. It's now has a trajectory that slowly but surely takes it towards the strike zone mm. and it's a strike. That's a perfect development, the trajectory. What if early in development, you're an inch off that arrow. By the time you get to the end of the alley, which is 20 years of human development, the vagaries of dust and other things on that arrow, by the time the ball gets to the pins, it's not one inch off the strike zone. It's about four inches off the strike zone. If there's a lot of dust on that alley, it may be further off the strike zone. At the same time, Dust on the alley, which is environmental experience perhaps, very good parenting, very good experiences at school, can actually deviate the ball back to the strike zone. Mm -hmm. This is how we talk about genes and environment interacting with each other. Human development is very complicated. There's a great deal going on, but genes are the blueprint for building brains and building the resources that brains have to develop in the context of extremely complicated human environments. You know, the human being is the only animal that has this very protracted postnatal period of development before it can function independently. Because the human brain evolved to develop based on early programs of development that interact with the environment it's critically dependent on how you set up the developmental capabilities to learn and grow based on your environmental experience. So our assumption is that mental illnesses involve a deviation from that early trajectory that either continues to deviate so when it gets to the pins, it's far from a strike, or manages to find a way back uh, over that developmental period towards the strike zone. Hmm. But the genes set up the trajectory from early in life. Do you expect someday in the future that that
0: this is something that, I don't know, we could use the word cured, that somebody who, who starts displaying these symptoms of schizophrenia can, can live what I, whatever a normal life is, something closer to a normal life, I guess. <sighs>
2: I mean, I don't think that's science fiction. I think that's a reasonable aspiration. I am very confident that within the next five to 10 years, there will be new treatments for schizophrenia that are much more effective with less side effects than the current treatments. Within five to 10 years, I think we will see that. Uh, and that's that's, again, I can't say we have something on the shelf right now that looks that way, but I think there's enough of an effort now to turn the new insights about causes into new strategies for treatment that it should translate into that kind of an expectation. Mm. It's definitely a new day. I mean, there's, this is such a sea change in how we understand these disorders that there's very good reason to be optimistic about what's gonna happen next.
0: Well, finally, um... How much do you think that this revolutionary understanding of these diseases through the human genome will change stigmas around mental illnesses,
2: or yes, schizophrenia, but... what are your thoughts? I'm very glad you asked that question, because I do think, obviously this is part of the dark history of both our societies thinking about mental illness, but even how research has looked at mental illness. It's a stigma, it's been stigmatized among researchers. I've always felt that among the strategies to reduce stigma, one of the most compelling is science. I mean, the more we take the rubric or this label that has always been attached to mental illness of that somehow this is laziness or this is bad parenting or this is people's not being willing to roll up their sleeves, this kind of stigma... Uh, or that people are ashamed or people are unwilling to talk about this publicly is driven by ignorance and it's driven by a misunderstanding. And because genes have really brought the whole science of mental illness into the mainstream of biomedicine and the mainstream of biomedical research, these are no longer mysterious conditions. Even though the behavior is mysterious, the human brain is very mysterious, but the basic science now of these disorders is a basic science that looks a lot like the basic science of most common medical disorders that have not traditionally been subject to this kind of stigma. So I do believe that this the science of psychiatric disorders now is so much less a soft science that this is a big impact on stigma. These are real. These are real human disorders based on major scientific features and components, just like all the other common disorders that plague the human species.
0: We've been speaking with Dr. Daniel Weinberger. He's the director and CEO of the Lieber Institute for Brain Development and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University. It's been a pleasure to chat today. Doctor, thank you for the time.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure for me, too.
0: Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. Listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.